Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Twice Round the Clock by George Augustus Sala. This story looks at London life in the mid-1800s, during the day and during the night, hence twice round the clock. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to all the listeners who reached out during the week. It's so great to hear from those who receive benefit from the podcast, and it's such a compliment when you reach out or leave a review or rating in your podcast app. As always... I am truly grateful to the listeners that support the show with a monthly contribution on Patreon or Anchor. The podcast is completely free, and it is thanks to listeners like you that allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. Whether it's $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes to those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. You can also say hello to me there. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at boytosleep. If you know somebody who is struggling to get a good night's rest, please feel free to let them know about the Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Twice round the clock, or the hours of the day and night in London, by George Augustus Sala. Preface. Had I not 50 other valid reasons did I not feel myself impelled to such a course by the long years of affectionate intercourse which have cast sunshine on that highway of life, of which the shadier side of the road has been apportioned to me, I should still, my dear Augustus, dedicate this book to you. I could show, I hope, my affection and esteem in other ways, but to address you the epistle dedicatory of twice round the clock is only your due, injustice and courtesy. Civility is not so common a quality among the eminent British authors of the day, and mutual admiration is not so plentifully displayed by our fieldings and smollets of 1859, that we, 
middling and middle-class ink spillers can afford to throw away a chance of saying a kind or civil thing to one another in the right way and in the right place. Do you, therefore, say something neat and complimentary about me in the preface to your next book? And I only trust that the task will confer as sincere a pleasure on you as it confers on me at this moment. But I might still, I must admit, admire you very much, without that admiration giving you a right to the dedication of a book relating exclusively to London life and London manners in the 19th century. Herein, however, rests, I think, your claim that you are the author of a capital book called Paved with Gold, replete with the finest and shrewdest observation drawn from the scenes we have both delighted to survey, to study, and to describe, and of which book, although the basis was romantic fiction, the numerous episodes were picturesque but eminently faithful photographs of fact. I should have liked myself to tell the story of a prize fight, of a ratting match or of a boy's low lodging house. In my own way, and in these pages, but I shrank from the attempt after your graphic narratives in Paved with Gold. And again, you have not been for years the fellow labourer of your brother Henry, in those deeply tinted but unalterably voracious studies of London life, of which we have the results in Labour and the Poor, and in the great world of London, of how many prisons, workhouses, factories, workrooms have you not told the tale, of how many dramas of misery and poverty have you not been a chronicler. Let us bow to the great ones of letters and reading their books with a hearty, honest admiration, confess that the capacity to produce such masterpieces is not given to us. But let us, on our own parts, put in a modest claim to the recognition and approval of the public. Please remember the reporters... Please not forget the bone grubbers. Fling a pennyworth of praise to the excavators and night watchmen who have at least industriously laboured to collect materials wherefrom better painters may execute glowing tableau of London life. At least we have toiled to bring together our tale of bricks that by the hand of genius they may be erected some day into a pyramid. At least we have endeavoured to our utmost to describe the London of our day as we have seen it. And, 
in the words of the judicious Master Hooker, of whose works, my Augustus, I am afraid, you are not a very sedulous student. We have worked early and late on London, and have done our best to paint the infinitely varied characteristics of its streets and its population. Though for no other cause, yet for this, the posterity may know we have no loosely throw silence, permitted things to pass away as in a dream. There shall be for men's information extant thus much concerning the present state of London. So you, my dear friend, that I have dedicated my work to you, you have been saddled with the dignity of its patron. I might have addressed you in heroic verse and with your name in capitals, and in the manner of Mr. Alexander Pope, bid anew. I believe your present ambition extends only to few-acre farming and the rearing of poultry, and I might well exhort you to return to your literary pursuits and to leave the Dorkings and Cochin Chinas alone. But I refrain. Am I to insult my patron with advice? Do I expect any reward for my dedication? Will your lordship send me a handful of broad pieces for my flattery's sake, by the hands of your gentleman's gentleman? Will you put me down for the next vacancy as a commissioner of hackney coaches, or the next reversion for a snug sinecure connected with the Virginia plantations, or the Leeward Islands. Will your lordship invite me to dinner at your country seat, and place me between Lady Betty and the domestic chaplain? May I write rhyming epitaphs for her ladyship's pug dog, untimely deceased from excess of cream and chicken? Or will you speak to Mr. Secretary in my behalf? lest that last paper of mine against ministers in Mist Week's journal should draw down on me the ex officio wrath of Mr. Attorney General and cause my ears to be nailed to the pillory. Can I ever hope to crack a bottle in your lordship's society as buttons or to see your lordship's coach and six before my lodgings in Little Britain. Let us be thankful, rather, that the species of literary patronage at which I have hinted exists no longer, and that an author has no need to toady his patron in order to make him his friend. For what more in cordiality and kind fellowship I could say. You will, I am sure, give me credit. When friendship is paraded too much in public, its entire sincerity may be open to doubt. I am afraid that Ostes, so affectionate on the stage, has often declined in the green room to lend Pilates sixpence 
and I am given to understand that Damon has often come down from that platform where he has been saying such flourishing fine things about Pythias and in private life has spoken somewhat harshly of that worthy. You will observe that with the economy which we should all strive to inculcate in an age of financial reform. I have made these remarks to serve two ends. You are to take them, if you please, as a dedication. The public will be good enough to accept them as a preface, but as the dedicatory has hitherto disproportionately exceeded the prefatory matter, a few words on my part are due to that great body corporate of patrons, whom some delight to call the many-headed monster, some the million, some the fickle, ungrateful and exigent, and some the generous, forbearing and discerning British public. The papers I have now collected into a volume under the title of Twice Round the Clock, or the hours of the day and night in London, were originally published in the pages of The Welcome Guest, a weekly periodical whose first and surprising success must be mainly ascribed to the taste and spirit of its original proprietor, Mr. Henry Visitelli. I confess that I thought as little of twice round the clock in the earlier hours of its publication as the critics of the Saturday Review, who, because I contributed for six years to another periodical, whose conductor they hold in hatred, have been pleased to pursue me with an anarchment quite exciting to experience may think of it now. I looked upon the articles as mere ephemeral essays of a description of which I had thrown off hundreds during a desultory, albeit industrious literary career. But I found ere long that I had committed myself to a task whose items were to form an entirety in the end that I had begun the first act of a drama. I grew more interested in the thing. I took more pains. I felt myself spurred to accuracy by the conscientious zeal of the admirable artist, Mr. William McConnell, whose graphic and truthful designs embellished my often halting text. I found, to my great surprise, that the scenes and characters I had endeavoured to embody were awakening feelings of curiosity and interest among the many thousand readers of the journal to which I contributed. The work, such as it is, was in the outset not very deliberately planned. I can only regret now, when it is terminated, that the details I have sometimes only glanced at were not more elaborately 
and completely carried out. It would be a sorry piece of vanity on my part to imagine that the conception of the history of a day and night in London is original. I will tell you how I came to think of the scheme of twice round the clock. Four years ago in Paris, my then master in literature, Mr. Charles Dickens, lent me a little thin octavo volume, which, I believe, had been presented to him by another master of the craft, Mr. Thackeray, entitled, but I will transcribe the title page in full. The date of publication is not given, but internal evidence proves the opuscule to have been written during the latter part of the reign of George II, and in the copy I now possess, and which I bought at a rarity price, at a sale where it was ignorantly labelled among facity, it is the saddest book, perhaps, that ever was written. In my copy which is bound up among some rascally pamphlets. There is written on the flyleaf the date 1759. Just 100 years ago, you see, the work is anonymous, but in a manuscript table of contents to the collection of miscellanies of which it forms part, I find written by Tom Legg, the epigraph says that it is printed for by the author and is to be sold by Teleg at the Parrot, Green Arbor Court, in the Little Old Bailey. Was the authorship mere guesswork on the part of the owner of the book, or was Tom Legg really the writer of Low Life? And if so, who was Tom Legg? Mr. Peter Cunningham, or a contributor to Notes and Queries, may be able to inform us. I have thus particular for a reason that this thin octavo is one of the minutest, the most graphic, and while in parts coarse as a scene from the rake's progress, the most pathetic picture of London life a century since that has ever been written. There are passages in it irresistibly reminding one of Goldsmith, but the offensive and gratuitous coarseness in the next page destroys that theory. Our Oliver was pure, but for the dedicatory epistle to the great painter prefixed, and which is merely a screed of fulsome flattery, I could take an affidavit that Low Life was written by William Hogarth. And why not? Granting even the fulsome dedication, Hogarth could have more easily written this calendar of town life than the analysis of beauty. And the sturdy, grandiloquent little painter was vain enough to have employed some hack to write the prefatory epistle, if, in a work of satire, 
he had chosen to assume the anonymous. Perhaps, after all, the book was written by some clever, observant, debauched man out of Grub Street, who had been wallowing in the weary London trough for years, and had eliminated at last some pearls, which the other swine were too piggish to discern. There, however, is low life. If you want to know what London was really like in 1759, you should study it by night and study it by day, and then you may go redoubled zest to your fielding, Smollett and Richardson, as one after a vigorous grind at his Greek verbs may go to his Euripides refreshed. From this little thin octavo, I need not say I borrowed the notion of twice round the clock. I chose a weekday instead of a Sunday, partly for the sake of variety, partly because Sunday in London had become so decorous as to be simply dull, and many of the hours would have been utterly devoid of interest. I brooded fitfully over the scheme for many months. At first I proposed to take my stand in imagination at King Charles' statute, Charing Cross, and describe the life revolving round me during the twenty-four hours. But I should have trenched upon sameness by confinement to singularity, and I chose the last old London as the theme of description. A mighty maze, but not without a plan. As a literary performance, this book must take its chance, and I fear that the chance will not be very favourable. Flippant, pretentious, superficial, and yet arrogant of knowledge, verbose without being eloquent, crabbed without being quaint, redundant without being copious in illustration, full of paradoxes not extenuated by originality, and of jocular expressions not relieved by humour. The style in which these pages are written combines the worst characteristics of the comic writers who have been the guides, philosophers and friends of a whole school of quasi-youthful authors in this era. I have reviewed too many would-be comic books in my time not to be able to pounce on the unsuccessful attempts at humour in twice round the clock. I have sufficient admiration and respect for the genuine models of literary vigour and elegance extent not to feel occasionally disgusted with myself when I have found the most serious topics discussed with a grotesque grimace the while. It is a bad sign of the age, this turning of cartwheels by the side of a hearse, this throwing of somersaults over gravestones. The style we write in is popular now, 
but a few years, I hope, will see a reaction when a literary man must either be clown or undertaker and grinning through the horse collar will not be tolerated in the case of Mountbank, otherwise attired in a shroud. Meanwhile, I cannot accuse myself of pandering to a depraved taste. I neither follow nor lead it, I cannot write otherwise than I do write. The leopard cannot change his spots. Born in England, I am neither by parentage nor education an Englishman, and in my childhood I browsed on a salad of languages which I would willingly exchange now for a plain English lettuce or potato. Better to feed on hips and haws than on granged green gauges and mouldy pineapples. I read Stern and Charles Lamb, Burton and Tom Brown, Scarron and Brantome, Baccio and Pigola Brune, instead of Mrs. Barbold and the stories from the spelling book. I was pitchforked into a French college before I had through Pinnock in English, and I declare that to this day I do not know one rule of five in Lindley Murray's grammar. I can spell decently because I can draw, and the power, not the knowledge in spelling correctly, is concurrent with the capacity for expressing the images before us more or less graphically and symmetrically. It isn't how a word ought to be spelt. It is how it looks on paper that decides the speller. I begin to look upon the quaint side of things almost as soon as I could see things at all, for I was alone and blind for a long time in childhood. I had so much to whimper about, poor miserable object, that I began to grin and chuckle at the things I saw. It is too late to mend now. While I am yet babbling, I feel that I have nearly said my say. This book, as a book, will go and be forgotten, but it will years hence acquire comparative value and disinterred from two penny box at a bookstall. Old directories, road books, court guides, gazetteers of half a century since are worth something now. They are as the straw that enters into the composition of new bricks or books. Let us bide our time, my Augustus, humbly but cheerfully. You may have better fortune. You write novels and tales, and the chronicles of love never die. But if in the year 1959, some historian of the state of manners in England during the reign of Queen Victoria points an allusion in a footnote by a reference to an old book called Twice Round the Clock, and which professes to be a series of essays on the manners and customs of the Londoners in 1859. 
that reference will be quite enough of reward for your friend. Macaulay quotes broadsides and grub street ballads. Carlyle does not disdain to put the obscurest of North German pamphleteers into the witness box. Albeit, he often dismisses him with a cuff and a kick. At all events, we may be quoted some of these days. Dear Gus, even if we are kicked into the bargain. Reader, were you ever up all night? You may answer that you are neither a newspaper editor, a market gardener, a journeyman baker, the driver of the Liverpool night mail, Mrs Gamp the sick nurse, the commander of the Calais packet, Professor Airy, Sir James South, nor a member of the House of Commons. It may be that you live in Clapham, that one of the golden rules of your domestic economy is gruel at ten, bed at eleven, and that you consider keeping late hours to be an essentially immoral and wicked habit. The immediate prelude to the career and the forerunner of the fate of the late George Barnwell. I am very sorry for your prejudices and your susceptibilities. I respect them, but I must do them violence. I intend that, in spirit, if not in actual corporeality, you should stop out not only all night, but all day with me. In fact, for the space of 24 hours, it is my resolve to prohibit your going to bed at all. I wish you to see the monster London in the varied phases of its outer and inner life. At every hour of the day season and the night season, I wish you to consider me the giant sleeping and the giant waking, to watch him in his mad noonday rages and in his sparse moments of unquiet repose. You must travel twice round the clock with me, and together we will explore this London mystery to its remotest recesses, its innermost arcana. To others, the downy couch, the tasseled nightcap, the cushioned sofa, the luxurious ease of night and day rest. Ours be the staff and the sandaled shoon, the cord to grip up the lions, the palmer's wallet and cockle shells. For believe me, the pilgrimage will repay fatigue, and the shrine is rich in relics. Four o'clock in the morning, the deep bass voice of Paul's, the stortigal of Bowles, has glowingly proclaimed the fact. Bow Church confirms the information in a respectable baritone. St. Clement's Danes has sung forth acquiescence with the well-known chest note of his tenor voice. Sonorous and mellifluous at Tambalik's St. Margaret's Westminster, 
murmurs a confession of the soft impeachment in a contralto rich as Elboni's, in stridy Levampa, and all around and about the pert bells of the new churches, from evangelical Hackney to Pusiet Pimlico, echo the announcement in their shrill treble and soprani. Four o'clock in the morning, Greenwich awards it, the horse guards allow it, Bennett, arbiter of chronometers and clocks that, with much striking, have grown blue in the face, has nothing to say against it, and that the self-same hour shall never strike again this side the trumpet's sound, the hour itself being consigned to the innermost pigeonhole of the dead hour office. A melancholy charnel house of misspent time is that, my friend. That hour will be 5am, and at 5 it is high market at Billingsgate. To that great piscatorial boss we ain't please you abound. It is useless to disguise the fact that you, my shadowy, but not less the beloved companion, are about to keep very bad hours. Good to hear the chimes at midnight, as just as shallow and false staff oft did when they were students in Gray's Inn. But four and five in the morning, these will be small hours indeed. This is beating the town with a vengeance. Word winter... Our bedlessness would be indefensible, but this is still sweet over summertime. But why the inquisitive may ask? The child man who is forever cutting up the bellows to discover the reservoir of the winds. Why four o'clock a.m.? Why not begin our pilgrimage at one a.m.? and finish the first half at midnight, in the orthodox get-up-and-go-to-bed manner, simply because 4am is in reality the first hour of the working London day. The giant is wide awake at midnight. He sinks into a fitful slumber about two in the morning. Short is his rest, for at four... He is up again and at work, the busiest bee in the world's hive. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you enjoyed listening to that story. And I hope you're looking forward to another episode very soon. Until then, good night.